Hello, you are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Sea Glass Blue by Mel Forbes on AO3. Rating General Audiences. Chapter 7. He's unaccustomed to two toothbrushes left on the same sink. If he's honest, he's unaccustomed with voluntarily brushing his teeth at night and knows he wouldn't do it if she weren't here with him. Two plates stack on top of each other in the sink, two suitcases pressed against the wall, two pairs of shoes towed off in the entryway, two coats hanging by the door. She was always a room away, never this close, never sharing her spaces in their entirety with him. He's unaccustomed to sharing a life with someone he loves. Even these small parts, even toothbrushes on a sink. In the main room, he stopped short because he didn't even have to think about bringing out warm clothing for both of them. Had they been on a case, he wouldn't have done that. Would have heard Scully lament about how cold she was and regret not having brought something. Would never have had the thought of warm clothes cross his mind. But now, he holds one of his sweaters out for her. Bulky, wool knit. Too big for her. Enough to drown in. Secretly, he hoped she would start taking his clothes. But that has yet to happen. And given how presentable she always ends up being, he doubts she's going to take any of his near-threadbare t-shirts, his grease-stained sweatshirts, his warm jackets. Though he's not following her for good reason, he can't deny that it thrills him, the thought of dressing her in his clothes, seeing her dwarfed by one of his sweaters, watching her tuck it into her jeans tomorrow and insist on wearing it as day clothes. But I doubt she would do that, he thinks, as he flicks on one of the kitchen lights, then gently slides open the door to the porch. She doesn't want that from me. She wants other things. I know it. But she doesn't want that from me. To his surprise, she didn't make it down to the beach. Instead, sits on the first porch step, leading there, looking down at her lap, her legs pressed together, her arms held close to her side, making herself as small as she possibly can be. She doesn't look back when he steps onto the porch, boards creaking, tides shifting. Though it's too dark to make out much around them, She's shaking with shivers, so he sits down beside her, reaches out with his sweater. Of course she resists at first, gazes down to the space between them, cheeks flushed with cold. But she takes the sweater from him. No typical thank you, as she pulls the sweater over her head and eases her short arms through the long sleeves. I'm sorry, he says, because he doesn't know what else to say. Because he knows that his default with her should be an apology. I'm so sorry that you married me. I'm so sorry that I stole the best years of your life. I'm so sorry that you're going to die as a woman you never wanted yourself to become. And that is all because of me. But he can't lament about it, because doing so would make him cry. So he looks up instead, not paying close attention to her anymore. He can't force a conversation, so he maps the different constellations in the sky. So many above them. He should have traveled to see a main night sky sooner. He feels so small in comparison to the galaxy here. To the left, he can see the Seven Sisters, a thumb smudge in the sky. And the Great Dipper, of course, is obvious. But if he really looks, he can find Cygnus. She has a similar constellation on her wrist, freckles arranged in what astronomers would call a swan. And over breakfast during their trip to Maine, he watched the way she held a fork, wrist reaching out of her shirt sleeve, and he wished he could have taken a pen and drawn out the constellation on her skin and Orion's belt, and maybe even Cassiopeia. 
However, there are so many clear stars above them that he has to squint to differentiate which stars are parts of which constellations, and it almost makes him laugh. The sheer privilege of having trouble determining which constellation is which. He doesn't get this kind of view from his apartment window. He hasn't seen a view like this and really stopped to look at it for years. Why did you ask me? She asks, voice hollow, the sound of it shaking him from his stars. Though he knows what she's asking, he pretends he doesn't, for he needs to hear her say it. The exact words, the exact meaning. He needs her to mean it. Ask you what, he says. And she huffs, and she's upset, and he doesn't know how to hold them both accountable without making either of them upset. Is this what love is? A series of calculated attempts to make each other as comfortable as possible with unsettling topics? To marry you, she says quietly. Looking over at her, he notices how the sweater fits her, the way she hunches over slightly, how she folds her hands on her lap. She doesn't wear earrings or other jewelry to bed but keeps her wedding band on nonetheless. He wants to ask her if she wears it in the shower. I just don't get it, she says, brows coming together, forehead tense. I thought... She tries to find the words but can't, so she brushes it off, gives. I thought a lot of things. Like what? I want to know why you asked in the first place, she says, her tone making it clear that she won't elaborate. And the answer to that question is so easy. He loves her and can't live without her. No, that's a horrible sentiment. He knows for sure it is. But there's a mark of truth in it. How life without her is going to be painful. How he wanted to symbolize that with a ring. Was that selfish of him? To ask to be a widow? Is widow even the correct term? When he was a child, he had a pair of elderly neighbors. And one, the husband, died of a heart attack midway through the summer. And the wife followed suit the day after the funeral. Old age, the cause of death, but sadness, the reason her life ended. Trying to think of autumn this year, Mulder can't picture it, for his office is going to be empty, and maybe he'll have a new partner, some spunky scientist trying to prove him wrong, and he'll hate that scientist with a burning passion, yell at them, and put them through hell because they're the wrong person for this job. Anyone but her is the wrong person for this job. No one could ever fill those little kitten-heeled shoes of his scully. He doesn't have the excuse of age to cease living without her, but he does have the excuse of marriage. Though there's no suicidal element, he feels that being able to mark his grief in such a conscious, respectable way will make it easier to bear. Now, when he acts out against the scientists in his imaginings, his colleagues will say to the scientists behind his back, he doesn't mean it. It's just that his wife died this summer, and he's struggling right now. Don't take it personally. At least now he has a reason to be unreasonable with his grief. But that's a selfish reason to ask someone to marry him, and he knows it. But the other obvious answer is impossible to tell her. At least not yet. It's so simple, he loves her. So he asked her to marry him. Had they had more time, he would have waited for a proper time to take her on a proper date and then ask her to marry him in a proper way on one knee, big diamond, her mother there to capture her surprise in a photograph. But they don't have more time. No, all they have is this spring, and then this summer, and if they're lucky, extremely, horribly, woefully, disconcerningly lucky, maybe they'll have a week or two of autumn together. 
He asked her prematurely because it was the only way he could truly tell her that he loved her, that he loves her, that he's still going to love her even when she's not here anymore. But he can't tell her any of that, at least not yet. It's not the right time. But when would be the right time then? He wonders. And that's the conundrum of living like you're dying. How knowing one has less time here doesn't make certain proclamations suddenly acceptable. He shouldn't have brought up the fact that she's dying while they were on a walk on the beach, for she had been joyful on a sunny day before he mentioned it. And he subdued her joy by bringing up what she spent that morning trying not to think about. He can't tell her that he loves her in order to win an argument. Even if not telling her makes him wonder if he'll even have time to tell her before she dies. Timing is still important. Even when she has little time left, timing is still important. If you take pity on me, it's okay, she says. And it must have been a while since she last spoke, for she's louder now, more demanding, more anxious. I can accept that. No, no, he says, shaking his head. Absolutely not. Never. Then why? He swallows, trying to come up with an explanation that isn't selfish or wrong for the moment. I would have done it right had I had the time, he says. What do you mean? You know. He brushes off, not wanting to elaborate. No, I don't. A date or something, he says, and he feels his cheeks flush with embarrassment. A date. The smallest, most arbitrary pair of emotional words. You could have just done that instead. Mulder, I I thought we were both taking this seriously. I thought we both meant it seriously. We do, he says quickly, wishing he'd never given her a reason to doubt such a thing. I do. It all feels so unnecessary. She covers her mouth with a fist, leaning her elbow against her knee. Not to me, he says, dumb tears stinging his eyes. Not at all. And then she looks at him, and he would tell her everything if he could. He would tell her everything if it meant that she would feel comfortable by that everything, not suffocated by it. He would tell her everything if doing so meant that she would feel safe with him again. I wanted to, he insists. I wanted, I wanted this life with you, this whole life with you. She looks out at the sea, at the gentle stir of waves, the reflections of the stars in the water. If he were an artist, he would capture this moment in its entirety, watercolor paints and jewel tones, his wife, as he tells her he loves her in the most fragmented way. I've thought about it plenty of times, he says, and maybe he's overstepping, but maybe she needs to know. I thought I'd wait a few years, just in case. To ask me to marry you? To ask you on a date? Oh, she says, laughing incredulously. It seemed right. He tries to defend, but she's shaking her head and laughing, and he knows there's no way to defend it. Though he won't call it cowardice, he knows now that was a bad idea, that the timing was so arbitrary, that he should have just asked her out long before he thought about someday marrying her. A year into their time together, that's when he should have asked her out. But it's all right in the end, for they're here, and they're together, and she's married him. She married him in front of her god, her parish, her mother— She married him because she wanted to. Maybe she married him because she loves him. And she reaches out to hold his hand, and he weaves his finger between hers, her skin warm out in this cold, dark night, 
and he wants to go back to bed, curl up with her, and leave the big words for another day. For now, she'll know that he wanted this all along. That it wasn't so much an impulsive decision, as it was one he meant to make years from now. And if she wants more in the future, two days from now, maybe a week, he'll let her know. He'll wait for the right time, knows that he'll be sure when he's found that right time. But for now, he'll hold her hand while she thinks things through. The stars are beautiful tonight. He wonders how she feels about wearing his sweater. Darting her hand away from him, she huffs. Sorry. When he looks over at her, she's covering her face, her fingers smeared with blood. And didn't she just have one? Do they happen this often? Back when they were still working together, she hadn't had this many in front of him. But he knew that she liked to hide how she felt. Liked to appear healthier than she was. So maybe they'd been this frequent all along. Thankfully, he has tissues in the pocket of his coat. So he pulls them out for her, hands her a few. Thank you, she says, tipping her head back and drying her face, mouth breathing in the cold air. He imagines the weather must hurt her throat. Should we head inside, he asks, and she nods ever so slightly, trying not to cause any more bleeding. So he stands, reaches down for her hand, helps her up. The kitchen's still lit. He guides her over to the sink, like two moths to the only light in the darkness, and then wets a paper towel, and she leans against the counter, the roses in a vase behind her, tendrils of her hair resting atop the petals. Though her clothes seem to have been spared, she has a smear of blood going up her cheek. So he leans down to blot that smear with the towel. His stroke's gentle, his hands cautious. She's so much smaller than she was in her work suits and shoes, but since he's followed her through this trip, since he spent time with her barefoot in her apartment, he's started to see her more as this size, not as her work size. Though she's small, she's his kind of small, someone who fits so well in his arms, and when he dabs at the blood on her face, she doesn't flinch away, doesn't move at all. No, she's okay with having him help her. She's okay with being loved by him. By the time she's stopped the bleeding, he feels his feet start to ache, the day too long, the small hours of the morning coming. She washes her hands in the kitchen sink, looking over at the roses as she does. Should he go back to bed and wait for her? Does she need something more? Mulder, she asks as she dries her hands on a dish towel, as she still wears his sweater, even though the cottage is much warmer than the porch outside was. He hums a response, looks to her, waits for a small and inconsequential question. Can we sleep in tomorrow? Can you kiss me goodnight? Would you mind if we didn't do too much tomorrow? I don't know if this is unreasonable to ask, she says looking at the roses rather than looking at him. But it's been on my mind. What has? She swallows, and though he wants to reach out for her, hold her hand, and tell her he'll do whatever she asks, he doesn't want to coddle her. Not when her brows are furrowed like this, and she's so uncomfortable with having to be serious. When it happens, she says, and he can fill in the blanks this time. I may not know in advance. But there's a chance it'll be obvious. There's a chance that I'll know how many days are left. I may at least have a best guess. Okay, he says, and his chest tightens, and the cottage feels too hot, and he's still wearing his coat, and he needs her closer to him, but he doesn't know if that's right. I know that this is a bit much, she qualifies, and he wishes she wouldn't. 
but I would appreciate if you promise to be there when it happens. For a moment, he's too stunned to respond, and she adds, Only if there's any reasonable foresight. Yes, of course, he says, reaching for her, taking both of her hands, needing her close. Of course I'll be there. Do you promise? Looking up at him, she has big blue eyes, so endless, and there's a constellation of a swan on her wrist, and there are even more constellations on her cheeks alone, and he could never deny her anything, not ever. I promise, he says. And he takes her into his arm and holds her because he needs to, and she wraps her arms around his midriff because maybe she loves him too. If you like this story and would like to contribute, you can do so by going to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash audio fanfic pod. As a patron, you are granted early access to one new story of your choosing per month. Thank you for listening. And remember, the stories are out there. <laughs>